Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. At the Festival of Place, we brought together developers, designers, cities, local authorities, investors and planners to discuss what makes places that thrive. Over the next few weeks, we'll be posting some of the speeches and panel discussions. Hopefully, we'll see you at the festival next year, which takes place at Tobacco Dock in East London on the 7th of July. In this podcast, we'll hear Dr. Patrice Darrington. Darrington is Mark Holliday Professor and Director of the Real Estate Development Program at Columbia University in New York. She brings significant global experience as an executive and board director of numerous property companies to her role in education having worked on Wall Street for over a decade as an investment banker and advisor to major clients, including David Rockefeller, KeyBank, and the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Patrice Darrington. (laughs) Thank you very much. So we wonder why the notion of having a day speaking about development in general is not so common. Uh, you know, where the audience, the sessions today, they're full of very active and inspired people doing a lot of very important things for the built environment, particularly in urban areas. However, you know, it's, it, it's one of those things that a lot of those people, a lot of you people, don't often speak with each other. You don't, uh, you know, you're, you're focused on the place, you're focused on how people, uh, how communities stay cohesive. Uh, you might be focused on how you have commercial success with buildings and so on. But very few of us have the time or, or even know people or even have a frame of reference, an intellectual frame of reference to cross-communicate. And I, I know this because this has sort of uh, been a bit of a personal challenge. I studied as an architect, Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, a PhD, very Berkeley, learning about how to house rural migrants in Brazil, you know, the migrants who came from the rural areas and settled in the favelas and so on. Very, you know, very, very socially concerned and so on. But I found impediments to being able to actually implement the ideas I had for social, for for doing a better job for housing. So what did I do? I got a Harvard MBA, right? Other side of the coin, you could say. Um, And, you know, I I don't regret that. At the time, I thought, this is the, uh, this is the, the belly of capitalism for sure. And I'm never going to work out how to actually contribute socially while I'm here in the midst of this. However, I did. I really believe that what we have done, unfortunately, is take a very fragmented approach to our built environment, and it's time that we actually came back uh, and were much more united in it. And so how do we do this? For many years, I did work on Wall Street, and I, you know, I managed to do some good social projects and so on, but I still find it a challenge as an intellectually cohesive thing, which is why being back at university now uh, at Columbia and running a program where every day I'm training 
you know, 140 students who, and you, congratulations to you, you look a lot more awake than they usually do, and uh, how to get them to think about contributing to the built environment in the numerous ways in which you do. How do we train them and how do we instill this cohesion or this ability to cross-reference each other's skills and each other's areas of, of activity very early on? So what I did was I said, well, where is the framework? Where is this? Where has uh, something like the urban built environment, uh, where did it become fractured? Because, you know, let's talk about the basic needs of, hum of the human condition, you know, food, We've got to have food, health, education, shelter, things like that, okay? And there's a few more, but those are key things. So if we were talking about education, we'd all be something to do with teaching. If we were all talking about healthcare, we'd all be something to do with healthcare. However, when we get to the urban environment, we all have very different perspectives. It's become this fractured, con con um, conflicted, um, you know, a, a not at all cohesive intellectual thinking. So therefore what I'm trying to do is research on how we might bring this back together. So today you're going to have all of these different uh, conversations and, and fabulous dialogues with people who've done tremendous things and are doing tremendous things. So what I'm just going to do is just set a little bit of an overarching thing. It might be might seem a little dry to people that are much more granular in what they do um, and so on. But I think you know it's it's just a way to say let's think about this sort of major problem of how this all comes together. What are the what are the big challenges in this respect? So. Uh, regeneration is broken. Um, Catherine said this. I said the development process is actually failing us, right? The, the process that we currently have. Um, and, you know, we are now putting that to use a lot in regeneration. Some of it's ground up, new, uh, new development, but so much of it now is an urban regeneration of existing uh, situations. So let's talk about the development process within the, within uh, regeneration activity and so on. How can we build better cities? Let's have a, just a look at the usual tools and processes that we currently use. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of government-led initiatives. Um, they will, you know, they will come up with the vision and they'll implement and the funding. We also have private sector initiatives. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask the audience, what are the challenges or what, what, what are the flaws we find when it's a government-led and implemented? Anyone want to suggest? Yeah. Exactly. You've got a political imperative. Usually it is the way in which government functions now is it's all an agenda. So as we currently know very much. Um, and so definitely it's, that, that's a situation. What's the other big vulnerability for government initiatives? Well, changes of government, exactly. Look what happened you know, with Thatcher and the Jubilee Line and Canary Wharf's demise because uh, there was a change of government. But uh, one of the reasons, but the main reason, uh, but funding. Right? Today we've got this sort of low tax environment, no one wants to pay taxes, governments need money and they get it through taxes. So we have a problem with that private sector initiative. 
we've seen a fair bit of that step in. In fact, London, the book I'm currently writing is about when real estate, private real estate re development really began as a business, as a practice, and that was 17th century London. Uh, anyone want to have a guess at the actual scheme? Very good, thank you. Covent Garden was a private development scheme. All the roads, all the, uh, the, uh, piazza, the plaza, and so on, were all put in by a private developer. As against Europe, where a lot of uh, government, or the kings and so on, uh, put those in. But uh, our poor old kings didn't have as much money at the time. They were fight, constantly fighting France. And, uh, and the city of London, of course, uh, wasn't too interested in the West End. But anyway, so what, so Covent Garden and this, you know, the Earl of Bedford there had the same exact problems as developers today. What do you think are the problems with private development? Come on. Hmm? Planning in terms of what? They have a planning of getting approval and why is it so hard for them to get approval? Exactly, there's a complexity of process, right? And that complexity of process is really a result of many different social agendas and political agendas behind that. So, you know, it's not just that you can say, we've got a need, we've got a social need, we've got an urban need, we've got a space need, let's do it. There's a whole lot of things going behind that set up the planning structures. In addition to the authorities, today what does a private developer typically face? Well, and, and community dissent, right? Community dissent is rising. And people are feeling more empowered, more knowledgeable, more uh, integrated in terms of communication. And they're out there to be able to voice their opinion. So that's a, an additional social concern. Um, and, then, uh, and then what else? So the, sort of the other side of that is, you know, our fear that they're making too much money, that there's greed and uh, rapaciousness and so on there. Okay, so private sector has its problems too. Um, Government-led with private sector, what we typically call today public-private partnerships and so on. We've got a few of those. What are, what are the uh, challenges or the issues they find? We've got developer, private developer. We've got government bodies. What's, do, you know, come on, we all read the press and whether you want to read a good press or bad press, what do you think happens? Well, yes? Conflicts about who takes the risk. Absolutely, the you know it often appears that the private developer gets a free ride because the government takes the risk, and then what's the other thing? Who gets the benefits, right? So you know then you see the private developer supposedly making all this profit, and yet the government and our taxpayer money is supporting them. So we're just feeding that greedy beast. So we have we still have a lot of problems with the PPP. Okay, so what are the tools, but you know, so they're the, they're the, that's the sort of current category of the way we go about it in terms of process. Some of the tools that are necessary as part of that process, and I just really started with some, you know, one is the capital markets, real estate or development and urban property and city space costs money. We're in a capitalist environment unless we really think that something extremely different is going to happen very soon, we're going to be in a capitalist environment for a while. Um, can we actually function more socially 
uh, or in terms of more social equi equity? Of course we can, right? So maybe, you know, it's, unless you're sort of out to, uh, you know, totally change the economic system, our issue is we've got to deal with these capital markets. We've just got to take them and function with them, you know, or we'll work with them in a way that delivers a better social outcome or socioeconomic outcome. Uh, PPP funding is one of the tools, and we spoke a little bit about that. It becomes a problem in terms of who pays for what and who benefits and who takes the risk. And then we have this big issue of community engagement, right? And you, we've got a fabulous article on community engagement in um, the developer and uh, some talks, further talks about it today. So I'll move on with that. Okay, so we have the government and we've been through this. Who pays? Who's the... You know, who's going to benefit? What's the um, political agenda behind it? Because we usually know uh, that there is some driving force and it's going to be short-termist because political, uh, political tenure is short-term. Um, and we often have a lack of public funding these days. The private sector. For the private sector, they, you know, while we said in, if from the perspective of social outcomes, we look at the private sector and we say, ah, oh, you know, they're just going to make money and so on. But we're looking at it really from, currently from basically 10 years of recovery from the global financial crisis. Uh, but in, in reality, even at Covent Garden, he ran out of money. He, you know, he was building houses for the rich. He was providing a public plaza. And even he had uh, capital problems. So, you know, we, the private sector really does have a lot of vulnerabilities in terms of how they have to survive as well. Um, they have an issue called profit, crist profit crystallization, which means when can they actually just get the capital back? And today it's a lot more complex because that money is just not coming from lenders, greedy lenders or even greedy bankers or whatever. It's also coming from pension funds, our, you know, general workers' pension money. It's coming from uh, government, uh, sovereign government funds, which is often, you know, for the benefit of, uh, of, of people and so on. You'll get the Norwegian uh, sovereign fund and so on. So, you know, those people, even though, even though they may uh, be providing capital, they're not necessarily driven by the same greed uh, or, or ex, you know, interest in maximizing their profit, but they do have certain requirements that they have to meet. Um, then we get a production period. How long is this production period? How long do they hold? How long is the developer in? Uh, one very important thing about the rise of the early developer was that even though Covent Garden took a long time to develop and the Earl of Bedford was involved with it for a long time, typically the developer becomes alienated from it. The capital is alienated, it comes from somewhere else, and then eventually the developer is alienated. And that, of course, impacts a lot of decision-making in the type of format, the type of uh, finishes, the quality, the timing, and so on. And then, of course, we have a big private sector uh, problem with community engagement. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So one thing that has, and you know, I'm not asking for uh, you know, a weep-weep and a cry-cry for the poor old suffering developer, but truly today, the developer is something of an implementer of global capital. Some of the global capital is coming from pension funds and so on, but this global capital is incredibly removed 
It flows around the world just based on the whim of returns and interest rates and so on. It is very, getting further and further removed from actually going beyond anything but a financial return on a project. So the developer is getting squeezed in this space and so on. So it's just something for you to remember because as I say today, we're getting down to lots of granular things, but there is this context and it's there and it's very difficult to manage. Um, so here we've also got, so what's the impact of this global market and of community uh, dissent and so on on uh, the private real estate development activity? What we're seeing at the moment is, pretty bluntly, that uh, urban development is regarded as being responsible for gentrification, being responsible for the unaffordability of housing, not just housing actually, but also workspace, affordable workspace. I mean, we work, that's not a cheap option, really. That's the biggest myth that I've, think, that I've seen floating out there lately. But you know, uh, flexible workspace does not mean it's cheap. We, what we are pr not producing is affordable workspace for people who want to be entrepreneur, entrepreneurial or run small businesses without big profit margins. Um, displacement is a problem. Social inequality is obviously growing. We know about that over, all the time. Additionally, we have oversupply and undersupply. In New York City now, we have 17 years worth of inventory of luxury uh, condominiums or apartments to buy. 17 years, if we just stop now building and they're not, we have 17 years to, for that to be all bought up. So, you know, it's crazy. And yet, people are sleeping on the streets, you can't get uh, a, you know, a community just refused to take, uh, to allow a homeless shelter to be built in their community and so on. So we've got this massive uh, dislocation. Public engagement, what's it look like? You know, it's definitely, you know, you get a, uh, a row of people either saying something, you know, saying, uh, voicing their opinions, or you get a row of people who have to provide answers. Uh, it's rarely a dialogue, it's usually a combative verbal session. Uh, at best, you might get uh, some roundtable experiences, some engagement experiences, uh, people inviting people in early in the process to have their ideas contributed and so on. Uh, but there are two problems. One is that a developer really does not know how to get from that to making decisions on the development project. Uh, in America, there's a great um, a new, you know, technology is helping now, and uh, Agala's developed a great system called Co-Urbanize, where she uses social media for people to contribute their ideas and their responses and so on. So that means that folks who are at home at 6 p.m. feeding their kids rather than being able to go to a, a community meeting can actually have some input. So sure, she's great, and a lot of big developers are using this. However, I asked one of them, one of the major ones uh, who supported her work and constantly is saying, oh, we do, com we do community engagement with this. I said, so how do you feed that in to your decisions on the development, they said, well, we haven't quite worked that out. So, you know, it's a different department and so on. So, you know, all they're doing is uh, ticking that box, as we say. So community engagement is problematic on that side. The other side of it is, we're asking people to make decisions about things that they're not even 
uh, I won't say educate, but they're, but they're not even really familiar with the details. It's like sitting you down and saying, would your brain surgery, would you like it to go this way or that way or so on, you know? So we made a big mistake in not including an understanding of how the built environment actually comes to be in our education and in our communities. And then all of a sudden we say, well, what do you want? And they say, we don't want anything tall and we, you know, and we want sort of, more open space or something, uh, and that's not really a dialogue uh, that, that is workable. Many people are trying, and today you'll hear more about what's, what's becoming possible, but we've just got a long way to go in terms of community engagement. When we've got uh, public-private partnerships, uh, when we're working on these two, you know, bringing these two entities together, the government and the private sector, we do still have uh, some of the, we inherit, there's a legacy of some of the drivers from each sector, uh, from the private sector and the public sector. So, of course, we have the political need. Nothing is going to get done as a PPP unless it's going to make some politician look good somewhere. Um, the second thing is that it's going to have to have some political salience. So some politician's going to look good somewhere and some politician's got to make sure that the people that he or she is trying to impress are actually happy with what they're getting out of it. So there's really, there is a grassroots salience often required. And then the last thing is, and this is usually the hardest to get, and that is actually leadership through the process because it's not going to be easy and there are going to be things that don't look so good for the politician uh, but having their commitment to leadership is the key thing that we're still lacking. Uh, on the private funding side, we have a real problem with still trying to get uh, the financial understanding of why social equity, why social concerns, and so on, are an important economic part of the development process. As I said before, a lot of the funding, a lot of the capital provided for urban development comes from very far away. You know, I mean, even if it's in the city, it's far away in terms of mentality and what it expects out of it. So we have a lot of problems still with the way in which private funding is applied to urban projects. Uh, public funding is, hard to st is also hard to get. Um, the private delivery skills, we've relied on this a lot. And yet, you know, we've still got a long way to go to train the development process, well, to have the development process be much more rigorous and much more inclusive. Um, and then we've got, when you, one of the big issues with public-private partnerships is, is the public entity that is in this partnership capable of really watching and understanding and being a constructive negotiator with the private interest. Sometimes they're excellent, sometimes they're not. And it's going to matter a lot to not just how the developer, the private developer works, but very much in terms of the outcome. I've never seen anything more critical in a public-private partnership than the ability for the public entity, whoever it is, or how, you know, there's sometimes a group, their ability to really have good oversight, constant, formalized, uh, clear, and rigorous. Uh, and then, of course, now typically, once we're doing a public-private partnership, you know, we don't, we, it's just not gonna work if there's no private interest out the other end. 
You're engaging pri uh, private money, you're engaging private expertise, and usually they are looking, they just, because this is what they do all the time, they're looking to the private uptake of what they deliver. Now we try and feed in social interests and social concerns and social outputs, but a public-private partnership does need to have something, even if it's just a for-profit kiosk, at, you know, somewhere on the site. Um, but it does, I, I've seen it hold the private developer's attention and really sort of pull them through dealing with all of those social concerns. So what are the determining issues when we're getting, uh, when we're looking at urban development and trying to pull together public and private interests? Um, don't forget that it is a, a largely a macroeconomic cycle that that uh, is going to impress both, or going to impact basically uh, both the public sector and the private sector. Also, the local economy. Now, the local economy can either be very supportive of a uh, of further development. There may be rising prosperity and a need for the development that's being um, undertaken. But sometimes the local economy is actually being targeted because it's not good. And so you have this very conflicted problem. In, in New York City, even, we have areas where it's suggested as a stimulant to a local economy that such and such happens. And the planning folks think that they've got it right. This will just be perfect. The multiplier effect for the local economy will be great. And the community doesn't want it. Okay, and once again, we've got this problem of does the community really understand, but also the community does know what it's about and what it, what it wants its uh, environment to be. So the local economy can be a problem also, uh, or, it, or it can need the support. The real estate markets, your private developer is going to be responding to the real estate markets, not only on this project, but in terms of all of their activities. So that's going to, uh, that's something that when you're working on a project uh, with a private developer and so on, and you're, you know, you're just looking at this market, do be aware of what's happening more broadly because they're going to be responding um, in terms of you know, what they do with capital and their attitude. The other big problem with, well, the, sorry, the other big challenge for public-private partnerships is what is the extent of the land use change or what is the change that's going to happen is it going to be very extensive, or is it going to be a sort of rather subtle or modu modulated uh, type of change? And even though we all like to make grand plans, and you can't hold the, you can't hold the politicians back from trying to do that, what ha I have seen actually work over the past 20, 30 years of public activities is something that's fairly incremental, and it, that's the way it, it gets to be solved. Um, a political agenda, of course, we've spoken about, and community permanent stability and co uh, cohesion. Uh, these are the things that matter to communities, their cohesion, their stability. And, you know, to neglect them uh, means a firing up of the discontent. Okay, so what I'm just going to do is, uh, I've, you know, a few public-private partnerships, very big on scale and so on, and then I'm just going to sort of talk about, uh, introduce these, uh, just as a sort of over, uh, overarching, um, I, I guess, concept of how these things work so that we can then go down today and talk about some of these things that are components, the very critical components of them. I've worked on the Long Manhattan uh, redevelopment. Uh, that doesn't mean the World Trade Center buildings itself. 
uh, that was funded by federal government, uh, sorry, by uh, insurance money. Um, although the insurance money was not enough, developers never insure uh, for the right amount. Uh, they're very cheap. And, um, but we had a very good thing happen um, in that for about five seconds, the United States was actually very sympathetic to New York after 9-11. So within that five seconds, New York quickly said, can you give us some money for the revitalization of this devastated area? And they asked for, you know, three times the amount, but in the end they got 21 billion. That 21 billion was for the revitalization of the area. People had left and, uh, you know, businesses had been devastated, not just the office buildings, not just the uh, office workers and the stockbrokers and the Wall Street folks, but a lot of small business. Uh, and so it, it was a big challenge as to what do we do with this area that was devastated. King's Cross is something that's underway, and uh, once again, fabulous article on King's Cross in the magazine, and uh, it's, you know, it, it's right there before your eyes. You're very lucky. Every time I come back, I go and check on it because it's a very interesting uh, development process. Hudson Yards in New York, uh, much discussion about that that's underway, and you've got Elfin Castle underway, and um, you know, you've got a great authority on that, Pat Brown, and she's going to be talking. And I think you know, understanding that very progressive way in which they've attempted to work with the community is important. So just a little bit about um, Lower Manhattan and the rebuilding. One thing that, uh, you know, Lower Manhattan, uh, who's, who here has been to New York City? Right, keep your hand up if you've been down to the Wall Street area. Oh, that's very good, okay, all right. Um, was that before 9-11, before the memorial? Right, very good, okay, but not too many people did, right? Um, it was, in terms of tourism, people might go to see the stock exchange and so on, but they typically went through it to the ferry, over to the Statue of Liberty and so on. You know, one thing about it now is that uh, all of that rebuilding and so on uh, has been intended to and is attracting uh, a lot of tourists and a lot of people to come and see it. And of course, you're all uh, very enlightened urbanists so, or, or people involved in the urban environment, so you'll want to see what's happening. But at the time, it had been, obviously, in the 60s and 70s, it had been Wall Street. It had been the center, the financial center of New York City. Then what happened, uh, and many people aren't aware of this, uh, but you know, if you've gone there over the years, you've seen Midtown arise. So Park Avenue, high rise, skyscrapers, and then it went over to, uh, it stretched right over to Broadway where they put up skyscrapers, Morgan Stanley and so on, right in the middle of uh, the uh, Times Square. So why do you think that happened? Why do you think this lower area that has been, you know, historic Wall Street, web finance, center of, you know, financial world and so on, uh, at time, you know, in, in typical hubris, but uh, why do you think it was threatened by Midtown? Anyone want to realize why there was a big, uh, people were moving up to Midtown away from here? What's that? Overvalued was definitely one thing. People were looking for smaller areas, but in, in it, you know, it's actually, say, Morgan Stanley, they can pay whatever they want, and they moved up to the middle of Times Square from, which, modernization of space, 
a lot of the buildings were obsolete, but even, you know, um, uh, definitely you've got a, a sort of a change of space needs. So there was the need for new buildings and nowhere to build it down there. So that's another thing. And then transport, okay? And what did you say? Activity, definitely no activity there and people wanted more 24-7 uh, in terms of their work environment as well. And then transport. The big thing about Manhattan is that the, if you live in the very expensive suburbs, when suburban living was the status, in Greenwich or, White, or, or Westchester and so on, you came into Midtown on the train and then had to take a subway line downtown and those subway lines were very, uh, you know, very underserved and so on. So those people said, the executive said, we're just going to stay in Midtown. We're going to take the train in and we're there. And Lower Manhattan did nothing to connect, well, you know, we did poor old Lower Manhattan, but no one did anything for Lower Manhattan to connect it to these major sources of workers for Wall Street activities. So therefore, they started just staying up there. So Lower Manhattan, actually, at the time of 9-11, had had three decades of deterioration of its occupancy by Wall Street, typical Wall Street firms, which includes the lawyers and every, everything that works around them. So when you're looking at it after 9-11 in, in, you know, in, in 2002, you're saying, do we build back? this Wall Street thing. Do we build back these office towers, um, 10 million square feet? Uh, is this what's needed? And there was a lot of debate. Uh, and uh, many people, including the mayor at the time, said, no, Midtown's going to be our new financial center, and we're going to make Lower Manhattan more of a bedroom community, a residential community, and people can commute from there up to Midtown. That was a really, really distinct belief that that's what it should be. However, uh, and, and this, is, this is what the, you know, so but let's talk about what was confronting this decision. For one thing, um, a lot of jobs had been, uh, you know, temporarily uh, removed from there, but 60,000 jobs were actually permanently lost uh, because of the uh, deterioration of the, or the loss of the facilities and so on. So we have an area now, a prime urban area, that is just going to be less of a job market uh, or less of a place of work than it was before. We had had, because of this move up to, low, uh, to Midtown and also because of the obsolescence, growing obsolescence of the buildings, nothing new had been built for a long time, we had a deterioration of the quality of space a big rise in vacancy, particularly in the B-class buildings, which were just the older buildings. However, what we had there, interestingly, below the radar, was a huge population growth. While New York City had, had grown in that decade, that prior decade, by 3.3%, the population that had located down there was, had grown at 9%. And this was a combination of a number of things, one being cost. Uh, you could, you know, live down there uh, at a lower cost than in Midtown. So we saw a very interesting urban dynamic that, you know, why fight it? So this sort of added to the idea of, yes, we should make this a residential area. However, when you 
build a residential area in a prime location of Lower Manhattan, what do you think your biggest challenge is going to be? You've got plenty of people who need housing, so go for it. Build as much as you want. What is, what's the problem? Affordability. Exactly. Affordability. The land is very expensive. The building is going to be expensive and so on. So you're not going to be able to afford at market prices workforce housing. Okay, not, don't even think about sort of social housing and not even workforce housing for teachers or police or, you know, uh, people who are on a moderate income. So therefore, would that be politically salient? Do you think a mayor would get away with that? Absolutely not. So then we had to do the numbers. Well, what do we do to provide for an acceptable number or, or acceptable amount of workforce housing? And this is what I was doing with the 21 billion. How can we take that 21 billion, some of it, and give it, con contribute it to this problem, to solving this problem? It turned out that it was going to cost $400,000 per family unit for a family of four, $400,000 subsidy for just one first workforce housing unit in Lower Manhattan. So, you know, that would, that would subsidize probably six in a more reasonable location. So we now had a, you know, we want to do the right thing. We want to say, let's have some affordable housing. But in the end, it just doesn't make sense in terms of spending money on social good. So we couldn't, we realized that, you know, we had to sort of moderate this a bit as well. So Lower Manhattan actually had to earn it, some of its keep. It couldn't just be a subsidized residential. It couldn't just be a, neighbor, a residential neighborhood that needed a lot of subsidy. Um, so what did we consider? We considered, you know, maybe making more of a tourist hub and so on. But even if you go down there now, um, it's great to go and see the memorial and the, you know, the building and so on is great. But there's still not much money for, um, for tourists and so on to do. More hotels coming along and so on. But really that scenario did not pay, uh, pay out. Over 20 years, it was going to be a negative $13 billion contribution to the city product, gross city product, a negative $13 billion. So the only thing we found that was actually going to be uh, at all possible or at all valid in, uh, in terms of contribution to the New York City uh, economy uh, was to bring more people in and bring, in, bring them in as workers. Right? There was already enough attraction in terms of residential and it's continued to be so, but we had to work out how to bring uh, the workers in. In fact, what I had looked for at the, at the time of thinking about the scenarios was if we look at American cities, and you know the, US, uh, the UK has had a lot more history and so on, so you've had a lot more variation, but the US has sort of been a pretty constant um, troop. Uh, if you looked at all of the cities and, and looked at when they've needed to, uh, when they've been vitalized in terms of economic growth and improvement in terms of housing and so on, there was only one significant correlation what do you think it was? Hmm? No, with transport, no, transport actually came after. So there's a good one, it's, it sustains a city. So you're absolutely right, transport is the, perfectly correlated with sustaining a city. But what creates jobs? People, 
population increases, swarms of population into New York City, whether they came through immigrants into places like New York City, Boston, uh, other New Orleans, other places. And then, of course, when you had, you know, when, they, when the slaves were released and so on, you had migration up to the northern cities and so on. Uh, that has been the only time when we've seen a significant correlation with increasing prosperity. And that, of course, is, you know, something that we don't quite believe, quite, quite register. Basically, people create jobs. People, we service each other, and it's becoming more so. Okay, and don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> Um, anyway, so population, we need to bring back population. We needed to move it in. We needed to expand the catchment area. This had been neglected for low Manhattan. As I said, Midtown Manhattan received a lot of the new transport in from the areas and so on. So now we had to do that. Then we got a, a lovely design, beautiful design. Um, and it's actually evolved to be very suitable in many, many ways. The problem was it, the process was just terrible. The, the process, no, I shouldn't say that. The process was not comprehensive in terms of taking in all of the things we've, we've discussed and what you're going to be discussing today. So once again, we have this sort of fracture between architects and, uh, you know, and, and people who are very educated and knowledgeable about the built environment and what they want and what they envision and so on, and a, a community sort of uh, you know, trying to keep up and trying to uh, have their voice and so on. And, you know, in the end, as I say, we've been able to pull it together, but at that time, it was, the process wasn't run well in that respect. Uh, but that was it. And uh, what we got was, uh, what we did get out of it, actually, fortunately, one thing was that we were going to include some commercial activity. We realized that we could not just make this residential, we could not just make this parkland, we had to have some commercial activity, and what would that be? Anyway, the big challenges were putting in the infrastructure, and this is, you know, when you think about this today, you're absolutely right that once people come in, the infrastructure, we would have loved it to have been there, but it never is, but that infrastructure's gotta come in pretty quickly. And how do you get that actually committed to and uh, delivered by the, private, uh, the public sector. The other thing is the public realm. It was a big, I would say the biggest challenge for New York, uh, for uh, New York City in terms of resolving the public realm at Lower Manhattan, oh, sorry, resolving Lower Manhattan uh, and the World Trade Center site and the surrounds was the public realm. And I know Pat Brown's been over there and spoken about it and various other people have contributed. And now we actually have, after much tossing and turning and gnashing of teeth and so on, we are finally seeing some quality of public realm emerging. So that hopefully when you go back and see it, that's what you'll see. Uh, we, as I said, do always realize that we're in a capitalist environment, whether we want to be or not, and we're going to have to place commerce as a part of that activity pretty typically. Uh, I wouldn't have said that when I was at Berkeley, but you know, a good couple of, good few decades of experience, uh, that's what I found. Um, planning challenges are changing. One now is security. Security and, you know, coming in here. Security going to Lower Manhattan to the public spaces and so on, big problem. The other thing is the integration of housing. So the problem for, low, for the World Trade Center site 
And the reason why our mandate was for a larger area of lower Manhattan for the 21 billion than just the site is the site was restricted to non-housing. That's because it was owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, two state agencies, and they needed it to drive income. So, you know, we always have a challenge of housing, and that one I said about the 400,000 uh, necessary subsidy has grown now. It's now 630,000, a subsidy for a, single, for a family, affordable family apartment uh, in Lower Manhattan. Uh, coordination always a problem, uh, and so on. And then I want to leave you being proud of your uh, King's Cross uh, project, which, as I say in the book and will be discussed today, you think of it as, you know, we, when we call to mind its fabulous activity of community engagement. Um, it, uh, in the summer, the good weather, it's great. We still have a problem with what happens in not so good weather. Um, very important that they put in uh, an attraction, the College of Arts, went in and became a, a sort of a cornerstone of what was going to happen there in terms of other activities other than just public realm. 2,000 homes, very important, bring the people in to live. Sustainability issues we cannot forget. Infrastructure, as we know, becomes a very important thing once you bring people in to live, work, play, and so on. Uh, Hudson Yards is underway. We'll see what happens. Jury's out. Keep it in mind. Elephant Castle underway. So therefore, off you go, have a great day talking about these various things. Let's try and work out a better way, uh, given a, a broader uh, overview and now some granular details from all our people today. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.